So now we move on to the great and powerful and deep and sometimes mysterious Thomas Aquinas. Now, to get where good old Tommy Boy was coming from, we're going to have to backtrack a ways to this tension between empiricism and idealism, between the concepts as existing in another realm and concepts being imperfectly derived from the evidence of the senses, which is the tension between Aristotle and Plato, the tension between reason and faith. And we're going to go back a smidge to look at the rise of scholasticism, where it came from, what it was trying to resolve, how successful it was, at least in my opinion, and some of its originators. So, Boethius. Boethius, you may have heard of the books, the famous book, Consolations of The Consolations of Philosophy, one of the great works of prison literature uh, of all time. And he was uh, a fellow often called the last of the Romans. And he is a Christian martyr. He was born in Rome in 480 and was murdered at Pavia in either 524 AD or 5. 25, depending on who you read. He was descended from a consular family, but he was left an orphan at an early age. And a very fine and pious fellow named Symmachus raised him and educated him and actually married him to his daughter, uh, Rusticana. Now, as early as 507, at the age of 27, he was well regarded and known as a wise and learned man. And decided to go into politics is it's not often wise for a philosopher to go or to stay in, to stay philosophers can dive into politics like a pearl diver can go down for a pearl but it's usually not particularly wise to stay there because the better and more effective you are as a philosopher the more blowback will occur from those who to whom philosophy is uh, the enemy so uh, king theodoric the local ruler uh, liked him and gave him important missions. He was obviously good friends with the king, enjoyed kingly confidences and so on. And because he was a patrician of Rome, the representatives of the Roman nobility looked up to him and elevated him in their minds quite a bit. And so everything was going well for him, a proud day with his two brilliant sons going off to professional success and, and uh, all of that. And then, of course, you know, you get that bang, bang, bang on the door early one morning, and he was arrested, accused of disloyalty to the Ostrogothic king, and they said, well, you're just attempting to restore Roman liberties, and was uh, accused of sacrilege, uh, the practice of astrology at the time, and his brilliance, his wisdom, his noble birth, his friends, his wealth, his power— well, nothing helped him at all. He was cast into prison, where he became, as you can imagine, exceedingly depressed. He spoke of sudden white hairs on his head, of the skin hanging loosely from his bones, and he was cast into, as you can imagine, quite a pit of despair. What a sudden change of fortune to be the king's confidant, and then, through the machinations and forgeries of your enemies, you then become the king's enemy, and he wrote the Consolations of Philosophy, where he said, basically, look... Anytime you tie your happiness to things you don't have any control over, which is most things in life, you're kind of doomed. So you have to have like a core self that's immune from the vagaries. The wheel of fortune was sort of a term that he popularized. And you just got to withdraw your desires and 
pleasures and preferences and stake of happiness from the things over which you have no control, which is most things, and you've just got to be stoic in the face of the wheel of fortune. And he was murdered, killed. He he was innocent of, of the charges, according to all reports. And the king had him killed a couple of months after he was imprisoned. And the king later regretted his decision, but, you know, bar one person we've talked about, there doesn't appear to be any resurrection from the dead. Now, one of the things that Boethius was very keen to do was to translate the ancient Greek philosophers, in particular Plato and Aristotle, into Latin so that it could be read by the educated clergy. I don't think he went all the way to the common tongue, to the local uh, language, but he really needed to get it all the way uh, translated to Latin because, of course, the educated could read Latin post-Roman Empire, but very few of them, or at least comparatively few, could read ancient Greek. And so he translated into Latin Aristotle's Analytica Prioria a Posteriora. He translated the Topica and Alenci Sophistici, and he wrote commentaries on Aristotle's categories and also a commentary on the Isagoge of Porphyrius. And the Middle Ages got a lot of their knowledge of Aristotle out of Boethius's translations. Now, he said, I'm going to do Aristotle, I'm going to do all of the dialogues of Plato, and his goal was to reconcile the philosophy of Plato with that of Aristotle. And this, of course, has been the goal of many... It's the unified field theory, in a way, where you can... uh, Idealism, which is that concepts exist independent of and prior to the evidence of the senses and are of higher category of truth than the evidence of the senses. Concepts are real. We call this idealism. You could call it Platonism or the world of the forms and so on. We just call it idealism, that the ideals are more important than the instances. And Aristotelianism, which is concepts are derived from the evidence of the senses and in any conflict between concepts and the senses. It is the concepts that must give way. You can think of this, of course, I call it empiricism, which is that the evidence of the senses trumps the ideas of the mind. They're more important than the, I mean, they're more valid, they're infinitely more valid than the ideas of the mind. Of course, this is science as well. And and this is also the, the free market. The free market, you say, I have things that are worth X, right? My My book is worth X, my song is worth X, my time is worth X. That's your hypothesis. And then what do you do? Well, you go out into the marketplace and you see who's actually willing to pay for your book, your song, your time, your wisdom, whatever it is, right? And this movement from theory into practice is really tough for the idealists. To actually put the ideas to the test is really tough. To say if there's a conflict between your ideal and empiricism, your ideal must give way, is really, I'm, I'm telling you, it is foundationally, existentially traumatic for idealists. Now, a, a cynic might say that if you go to an idealist and you say your ideals must crumble in the face of reason and evidence, that you're calling them on a con. <laughs> I think it's more than that, but there is a specialness about people. If they think that the truth is within rather than the truth, the truth principles are derived from sense data and empiricism. If the truth is within, then they have within them a kind of God called the truth, a kind of access to 
eternal, perfect, all-moral, all-knowing aspects. And I'm not going to call that God, because in Plato, while there is a divine aspect to the forms, there is a God almost of everything. It's a polytheism. There's a God of chairs. There's a God of forests. There's a God of paint. There's a God of toenails, right? Uh, There is an ideal form or a perfect form of everything. And so Platonism is more of an infinite polytheism, whereas for Christian theology, the ideal, the idealism, is really core to God. The, The God is the top of the pyramid. And so this challenge is the world of reason and the senses superior to the world of ideas and ideals. Huge conflict. Some people call it the mind-body dichotomy, although I think that's kind of dismissive. Just saying empiricism is simply a function or feature of the body is, I think, a, a big mistake because the body is simply insensate. I mean, it simply transmits uh, evidence of the senses through nerve endings and, and so on to a brain that has to be actively into thinking about and pursuing and analyzing these things. So saying that Platonism is a mind without a body and saying that empiricism is a body without a mind, I think is unfair. Overlapping circles. Overlapping circles is the key in philosophy. There are operations within the mind that are not directly derived from the senses, you know, imagination, fantastical things, dreams, and so on. And then there are operations of the body that are immune almost exclusively to the ideas of the mind. If you have your arm amputated, you can't clap your hands together, right? Uh, if you if you lose a leg, you can only hop. And so the operations of the mind don't really affect that. So I just really sort of wanted to point that out. Now, one of the things, the reason I'm talking about Boethius here is because Boethius's great plan was to translate Aristotle and Plato into Latin, which was the, it was the English of its time. It was the language of the educated classes and the theologians, of course. And he was killed by the king he served before he could translate Plato to any significant degree. So he did some very, very key works of Aristotle, but not Plato, but not Plato. This has a huge impact on Western philosophy because what happened was the Christian thinkers had easy, robust, and very well-translated access to Aristotle, but not to Plato, which meant Neoplatonism had to be way down in the future. Now, you could really make the case that the mystical side of Christianity, and there was a very practical, empirical, scientific side to Christianity, but the mystical side of Christianity would have fastened onto, like a, a snake onto the jugular of a deer, It would have fastened onto Platonism, and we would have had the idealism elevated to center stage in Western philosophy. And the degree to which philosophy becomes idealism is the degree to which it stops being philosophy. And then it becomes faith, it becomes inspiration, it becomes disconnected from that which can be clearly and consistently communicated to other people. If you invent your own language, you have a language but you're out of the debate, right? The degree to which philosophy turns towards the world of the forms is a degree to which it stops becoming philosophy. Now, I know that's a big statement to say, well, you're saying Plato is not a philosopher. The way that I uh, would argue this is that Plato was a mystic in that he promoted a higher realm inaccessible to reason and evidence. 
but philosophy is reason and evidence. That's my Aristotelian side. That's my objectivist side. That's my me side. Philosophy is reason and evidence. And philosophy can't be both reason and anti-reason. It can't say reason is the path to truth and the opposite of reason is the path to truth. GPS can't say go north and south to get to the same destination. Now, the evidence of the senses is essential to survival. We can't survive without the evidence of the senses showing us what is food and what is water. And if you count hunger as a sense, there are dozens of senses if you count more than the, the sort of main five, then to reject the evidence of the senses is to not survive. So if the human mind has to exist in order for there to be philosophy, and empiricism is required for the human mind to exist, to reject empiricism is to say that I reject the foundations of reality that keep me alive. And if you do reject them and you cease to eat and you instead decide to snack upon the platonic ideal of food and drink, then you die. So it's it's a split, it's a tension, and we'll sort of get into more of that. But this, the fact that Boethius translated Aristotle but not Plato and did such a great job of it meant that when theologians encountered Greek philosophy, they encountered it to a large degree, you could argue almost exclusively, but to a significant degree, they encountered it through the empiricism, the reason and evidence, and the rejection of the forms that characterizes Aristotle, that concepts are not outside the realm of the senses, that reason and evidence are what's most important. And of course, Aristotle studied truth by studying the world. Plato studied truth by studying his innards, or at least that was his recommendation. But Aristotle studied truth by studying the world, was the great classifier of the ancient world. And this, of course, appealed to theologians of, in the Christian world because to say that there are categories of animals and there are you know, genuses and, uh, genuses and subspecies and, and so on, the categorization appealed to them because it showed an invisible spiderwork plan of God's hierarchies and divided the world into comprehensible units with consistent patterns which gave them evidence they believed and argued for the existence of a God designing things, a God creating things. This is the watchmaker argument that if you were hiking through the woods and you came across a watch that worked, it ticked, it showed the correct time, showed the current correct time, you wouldn't sit there and say, well, without a doubt, this watch was blown together by a small cyclone from the disparate materials of which the watch is made. You would say, no, where there is a watch, there must be a watchmaker. And if you look at something as complex as the human mind, the human body, the human, even the human eye, you say that this is like finding, saying this is all just natural evolution, is like finding a watch in the forest and saying, there's no watchmaker, this was just an accident. Or if you see a plane sitting on a runway, would you say, well, the plane parts were scattered around the world and the wind just blew the plane parts together to form this functioning airplane? Could it happen? Yeah, theoretically, I suppose it could happen. But we would say that where there is something that has been purposefully designed or designed for a purpose, then there had to be somebody who created it for that purpose. It wouldn't be an accidental situation. So the focus on Aristotle and Christianity produced a movement called scholasticism. Now, scholasticism was a school philosophy. 
And it really was focused on trying to reconcile Aristotle and Jesus, to put it in a very sort of big and, and maybe uh, reduct, reductive way. So 529 AD, there was a decree of the Christian emperor Justinian that closed the Platonic Academy in Athens. And that really was the end of the physical establishments of pagan philosophy because it had a real ripple effect, and, and this kind of stuff went, went underground. Now, scholasticism has had its detractors, and I've certainly been in that field from time to time. Uh, you know, the German idealist philosopher Hegel wrote a book. Uh, it took him a couple of years, 1833 to 1836, uh, wrote a, bo- a series of books, Lectures on the History of Philosophy, and he declared that he would, quote, put on seven league boots, end quote, in order to skip over the thousand years between the 6th and 17th centuries. And having at last arrived at René Descartes, said that he now could, quote, cry land like the sailor. So this is the thousand years, the Dark Ages and so on, which is uh, talked about. And this was considered to be unproductive and, and circular. And the scholastics were widely marked for trying to answer such pressing questions as, did Adam have a belly button. Of course, if Adam is made in the image of God, God himself has no belly button, not born of a woman, no need for an umbilical cord. So God does not have a belly button. If man is made in the image of God, then Adam cannot have a belly button. But we do have a belly button, so is the chain to being made in the image of God broken? Now, again, these may seem like very esoteric and abstract debates, but when you take your theology seriously, these are very important questions to answer. So the scholastics would pick a book and they would pick it apart and they would look at various translations and they would try to understand the book, the work itself, and they would debate about the meanings of the book. So in a sense, it was an empiricism of language, not of nature. In other words, the starting point of what you examine is not nature, it's not facts, it's not reason, it's not the evidence of the senses, it's not the categorization of natural phenomenon the scholastics took as their primary source of things to analyze books and the text itself. And now the fact that they kept alive all these texts and talked about these texts in such great detail did really provide the foundation for what came later. So the sort of spade work that they did keeping these things going and keeping them translated and and spreading them out across the inevitable depredations of history did quite a bit of... uh, did quite a bit of good, in my opinion, but it was not a huge amount of progress, of course, for philosophy as a whole. Now, starting around the ninth century, we've got the Carolingians, and they revived learning. Learning is always heading underground, right? I'm on my burrowing phase at the moment. Learning is heading underground to avoid the predations of those to whom learning interferes with their interest, a power uh, and control usually. So the Carolingian revival of this kind of education really gave Christian thought a significant push in a new directory. Uh, scholasticism means, in a sense, school or school of thought, and they, in the ninth century under the Carolingians, Carolingians, the masters of these schools began to talk about psychology, cosmology, ethics, metaphysics, and this kind of rationalism, which is very key to scholastic philosophy, really came out of this. 
So you've got John the Scot. These are just people you can look up if you want. And the first real guy was John the Scot, Johannes Scotus Eruginia. During the 11th and 12th centuries, this conflict, again, between reason and evidence and idealism, between empiricism and idealism, this conflict began to arise. And so you had uh, Abelard, Peter Lombard, Russellin, these were on the rationalist side, the empirical side, and you had mystics such as St. Anselm, St. Peter Damien, the Victorines, and St. Bernard, I know, <laughs> sounds like the dog, right? Uh, on, on the other side, and this was tough. Do you get to truth through revelation, through looking inward, through faith, through um, inspiration, or do you patiently accumulate truth by examining and categorizing and understanding the things of this world? Is, in other words, the essential truth of this world within your own soul, and you introspect to find the essential truth of the world, or do you approach the truth of the world through patient empirical examination? Or, to put it another way, if you want to study the mind of God, do you look inward or do you look outward? Now, the empiricists would argue that you understand God's mind and purpose by looking at the creations of God, right? If you want to understand an artist, you don't introspect what you think about the art, how you feel about the art. If you understand, understand an artist, you examine and understand the art that he created, right? If you want to understand a thinker, you don't look internally to your own thoughts alone. Instead, you read the thinker and you try and understand where he's coming from and that's how you understand the thinker. So if God's thoughts, plans, and ideals are manifest in the physical creation of the universe, then to study the universe, which requires reason and evidence, does not alienate you from the mind of God, but rather brings you closer to the mind of God. That's the empiricists, the Aristotelians. The Platonists, the mystics, the idealists say that you look within and God is a sensitive vibration right at the very heart of your soul and, and I don't know if you know it, but but it's it's you look within. The problem is when you look within, everybody finds something different. When you look within, everybody finds something different. When you look without, when you look into the world, everybody comes up with the same stuff, right? Everybody comes up with the same stuff, everybody who senses work and so on, right? So if you look within, you isolate yourself. Society fragments. If you look outside of yourself for the truth, as I've always said, you can only meet other human beings in reality. So this isolation, and we are social animals, and, and this is why idealism or Platonism or mysticism is such torture for us. It separates us from other people whose reality we should and could share. So the rationalists kind of won out, right? So ninth to the end of the 12th century, in Christian universities, rationalism, or the focus on reason, was dominant in the Christian universities. And it coexisted with the idealism, with the more mystical elements of things. And in an interesting example of how war leads to wisdom, Constantinople was captured in 1204. Of course, this is AD. And you get really a huge number of works from Jewish philosophers, from Greek philosophers, from Arabian philosophers, and they just come flooding into the Christian schools through the inevitable Latin translations. And so, while formerly under Boethius's translations, Aristotle was known as a consummate logician, I mean, the three laws of logic discovered or invented by Aristotle, but Aristotle is now known as 
a psychologist, understanding and studying human motivations and the virtues and values of self-knowledge. He's also known as uh, a metaphysician and uh, an epistemediologist or whatever you have, somebody who studies epistemology. In fact, Aristotle is responsible for these categorizations because he was the consummate card-shuffling categorizing guy. And so you get this influx of additional thoughts from the fall of the capture of, of Constantinople, which has, again, a huge... It's hard to understand. It's like the internet back then because there's such a new flood of information that comes in. It really is like the universal language of TCPIP. Now, with new information, with a wide new dissemination of information, comes a kind of polarization. That's really important to understand. The polarization is wild. And we're experiencing this directly, the same thing that happened after the fall or the capture of Constantinople in 1204. You got so much information coming in that people began to pick and choose based upon their own preferences and sometimes their own better arguments or the better arguments of others people began to focus on what they preferred to the exclusion of what they disliked. And, I mean, you know this on social media, right? There were two overlapping bell curves of the left and the right. There were differences and divergences between them, but they overlapped significantly. And you can see with the advent of the Internet, with all this new information, people get caught into these reflective echo chamber bubbles. They no longer consume material outside those echo chambers, in a sense. And polarization occurs. And a lot of what to do, if you don't have philosophy that is generally accepted, then restricting the flow of information is essential for having any kind of unity. When the flow of information is not restricted, but there isn't a common reason and evidence philosophy to guide people towards the truth, then people fragment into opposing camps. And this really sowed the seeds of the religious wars that tore Europe apart for hundreds of years, or 300 years in, in some places. So with all of this new information opening up, you began to see a, a split, a separation, and then an opposition between these, uh, these two camps, and a general feeling that they were not, it was not able to synthesize. You could not synthesize Platonism with Aristotelianism. You couldn't synthesize empiricism with idealism. And therefore, it started with debates, as this is usually the case, the powers that be intervened to prevent polarization, which increased polarization, and that led to war. It's a sadly tragic cycle of history, as long as you have these particular centralized powers. So um, what happened was the University of Paris in particular became a real heart, a real um, center for increasingly contentious philosophical uh, debates and there were pantheists like David of Dinant and the uh, Averroists like uh, Sigur of Brabant. They really began to alarm those in charge of the church and their, quote, extremism was so alarming to the church that it began to threaten the acceptance of Aristotelianism at all because Aristotelianism in its rejection of the forms, rejects the mysticism that was very important for a lot of theologians and theologians, and of course for Christians, many Christians as a whole. So as Christendom began to fragment into these opposing debates between studying the world to know the mind of God or studying the forms to know the mind of God, uh, 
the church began to impose some pretty strict disciplinary measures because they felt that the increased empiricism began to undermine the faith essential to Catholic redemption. Now, two men in particular, St. Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas, did manage to wrestle the authority of Aristotelianism over the finish line. And St. Bonaventure made some pretty powerful and compelling arguments that Aristotelianism was compatible with Christian mysticism. And so because Aristotelianism or empiricism, again, won the day, is too simplistic, there, were always, there are always pockets of resistance, but in general it was allowed to pursue the study of the natural world and it was not considered to be oppositional to Christian mysticism. Now, because empiricism, the study of Aristotle, was accepted, again, individuals make history, there are no larger patterns but what we will, but this paved the way to a very disciplined and rigorous examination of the natural world. And this led to Roger Bacon, the foundation of the scientific method, and so on. So it is really, do you choose to make these arguments or not? Do you choose to pursue these arguments or ideals or not? That's up to you, of course, but history hangs in the balance of what you and I do in these in these areas. And actually, in, in Spain, this scholasticism focused on economic theory. And the Spanish scholastics focus on economics actually had a fairly significant influence on the Austrian school, which is a school I'm very close to in in heart and mind. So I just thought it was interesting, and if I ever get around to a history of economics, we'll talk about that in, in more detail. And of course, it is important to remember that overshadowing all of this was the compulsive nature of the Catholic Church of Christendom in that there were certain questions of faith that you could not address, and the punishment for addressing them could be execution. So that's important. Heresy was a very real thing, and I write about this in my novel Just Poor, but you can get it at justpoornovel.com. So thank you for your patience with the backstory. Let's talk a little bit about Aquinas now, uh, a philosopher and a theologian. My gosh, I'm like Benedict Cumberbatch with penguins. And one of the top-ranked and greatest thinkers of the medieval era. So he was an Italian, uh, born in Roccasecca in 1225. And like many of these guys, he was born into a highfalutin aristocratic family. He was educated at a Benedictine abbey, and then he attended various universities in, in Paris, in Naples, in Cologne, and he taught theology starting in 1252 at the University of Paris. So again, he would be right at the center of all of these debates. Now, much like Averroes in the um, Arabic world, or the Muslim world, Aquinas believed, and really at the heart of his teaching, with this significant overlap between science and religion, he said that religion can be integrated into philosophy and science. So, if reason is valid, and reason leads to truth, and religion is true, then, you know, all roads lead to Rome, right? The further you pass down, like, if, if the goal of theology is the truth, and the goal of reason is the truth, then you have two paths leading to the same shining city called 
the truth. And the idea that, you know, none shall pass, right? You, you can't go any further along a particular direction towards the truth without threatening the truth, right? If reason pushes back faith to the point where uh, faith is ridiculed and dismissed, then God is lost and reason has led you to a sterile, empty world of uh, the Nietzschean will to power and no soul, no truth, uh, no no values, no morals. Uh, and so this tension between empiricism and idealism really came to a head and Aquinas spent most of his life trying to reconcile those things. Now, the overlap between reason and religion is not one-to-one. They're not just two circles. It's not like uh, two Oreo cookies you just put on top of each other with no overlap. He accepted that science can produce some truths which faith cannot produce, but faith can produce some truths which science cannot prove. But there is a lot that they have in common. So think it's hard to know exactly how much these two circles overlap. But in my view of Thomas Aquinas, it's pretty significant. There are not a lot of truths only available to faith, and there are not a lot of truths only available to reason. So the significant majority of truths can be accessed by both. And faith may inspire you to pursue reason. Reason will then validate your faith. You know, there's that famous story of the physicist, I think it was, who dreamt of the structure of a carbon atom. It was a snake eating its own tail. It gave him an idea of the structure of the carbon atom. And then, of course, he had to go and prove it. It's one thing to have the inspiration. It's quite another thing to go ahead and prove it. So uh, for Aquinas, inspiration could lead you on the path to knowledge. But the methodology of knowledge of, of science empiricism and reason can lead you to some significant spiritual truths. There's an odd little hiccup in Aquinas's life. So he joined the Dominican order, which his family hated, and his brothers then kidnapped him and locked him up within the family for a year or so to try and I mean, this is, a, like a, this is how people deal with those sometimes in cults, is to kidnap them and they try to argue and debate and reason and confine him out of his focus on the Dominicans' theology, uh, but he hung fast and, and stayed with it and so on. And, and the man was a writer. Uh, he was really a writer and a half. He produced more than 8 million words. And we actually know the date when he stopped writing. It was four months before his death, on the 6th of December, 1273. He had a mystical experience and stopped writing. Now, I don't assume he knew he was going to die like the Cyclops in Krull, but he stopped writing. And his quote was, All that I have written seems to me like straw compared with what has now been revealed to me. And then he died in 1274, about four months after this religious vision. And you can read about his uh, sexual ethics, his opposition to homosexuality, to masturbation, and so on. Uh, Interesting topics, uh, you can read up on those, uh, not particularly philosophical, much more theological. But what we do want to focus on is uh, the five proofs for God. Uh, Obviously, he's five times better than 
the last guy, because, you know, last guy. Anselm only had one. Uh, Thomas has, has five, a 500% improvement. That's just a quick quote to sort of support what I said before we go. Aquinas said, some truths about God exceed all the ability of human reason, but there are some truths which natural reason also is able to reach, such as that God exists. And the general idea or argument behind all of this is God gave us the faculty of reason, and God gave us a universe that is comprehensible by, re- by reason. So why should we not eat a food we're designed to eat that is good for us? If the food is placed before us and we're hungry, why wouldn't we eat? It would be irrational to avoid eating when you're hungry and good food is put in front of you. So God gives us the faculty of reason. God gives us a rational universe. And why would we not? Why would we reject the gift of understanding the universe that God created? It wouldn't make any sense. We honor God by studying his works. But the shift from studying the text to studying the world itself was a very, very important shift. From studying the minds of others to studying the natural world itself was very powerful. And it only strengthened Aristotelianism to study the world rather than the minds of people because people change their minds. They Sometimes their writings can be ambiguous. So Lord knows I misunderstand, misunderstood quite a bit throughout the world as a whole based upon people's prejudices and my own uh, changes in thinking and my own attempt to pass the universe of philosophy through the narrow aperture of merely <laughs> empirical language. It's a, a you know, camel through the eye of a needle situation sometimes. I wish we could just do a mind melt. But to shift from a focus on the text, right? So you've got the focus on the forms originally, this mysticism, which is just looking within yourself and then describing your inner experiences in glowing terms to other people in the hopes of inspiring them to do the same when you never end up meeting. It's a bunch of people having the same dreams or not on vacation together. So looking within is one thing because there is no empiricism to that. And then you shift through scholasticism to the empiricism of language, to the empiricism of the text. And now this, is, of course, started with uh, the Bible, but it moved on to various uh, thinkers, and in particular uh, when the explosion of, well, Boethius' translations of Aristotle followed by the Constantinople access to the ancient texts in 1204, people really, really studied the texts. Now, studying the texts is, well, this guy says this thing, then he says something else. These two guys disagree. This phrase is used in one way, and this guy's writing here, but it's used in a different way here. You can really go down that rabbit hole, and you don't get to science. I mean, it's a fine thing to do. I took a couple of years of English literature, and studying and unpacking texts is a very interesting and important thing to do. But it's not going to lead you to science. It's not, and, and it's not going to lead you to the true power of reason. It's not going to lead you to the true power of reason. So I do dream analyses with people and also with myself. I do dream analyses, and they're very important, but it's not a scientific or rational discipline. But if you focus not on your own inexperiences, not on the ideal and abstract and incommunicable and anti-empirical realm of the forms, but if you focus on the text, you have a more objective but still not objective set of information to examine. So you'll say, well, there are inconsistencies in the text and we have to resolve those. Okay. But if you move from studying yourself to studying text to studying nature, 
Well, then you get the foundation of science. Because nature does not contradict itself. Nature is perfectly consistent, perfectly universal. Where there are seeming contradictions, it's simply because you don't understand the rules of nature well enough. And of course, in the late scholastic period, and Aquinas was very much of this view as well, that, and this was very much marked by Voltaire in Candide, the best of all possible worlds, uh, notice how the clouds admirably uh, are formed from water vapor evaporating from the ocean and the clouds delivered unto us the rain which refreshes and provides us water and to drink and, and to water our crops and uh, all of these things. Just notice how wonderfully the world has been organized for the sake of man to flourish. Clearly, uh, if uh, you're in an environment where you flourish enormously well, that environment has been designed for you in the same way that you don't put uh, penguins in a sauna at the zoo. You create a habitat that allows the penguins to flourish. That habitat is created for the flourishing of the penguins and the more the penguins flourish, the more it seems that the world has been designed for us to flourish. Now, of course, in the absence of evolution, understanding that the world is what it is and evolution would select those best able to flourish within that environment to get to the top rather than the environment is designed for us to flourish, we can only survive by by adapting to the environment. Um, But, of course, in the absence of the knowledge of evolution, uh, at least... I mean, everybody knew about animal husbandry and breeding, selective breeding and so on, but in the absence of knowledge of Lamarckian or Darwinian evolution, it's very easy to say, well, look how uh, look how admirably the world has been designed for human flourishing. And so to study, uh, if, if an animal wants to study its zookeepers, then it, might, it would profit by studying the zoo enclosure that it's in, right? Because if the zoo enclosure has been designed by the zookeepers, then you can learn a lot about the zookeepers by learning about the enclosures, what they built and why and and all of that. And you can also get a sense of their benevolence if they built things for you to uh, flourish in. So that aspect of things was pretty important. So focusing on studying the world is studying the mind of God, and it's a great benefit. And this was the foundation to science, which led to... um, objective and universal empiricism it led to crowding god out of the natural universe it led to evolution and so the focus on reason and evidence which was considered to be serving the knowledge uh, human knowledge of the mind of god ended up to a large degree producing the agnostic or atheistic modern world where god is denied now i've talked about this before as well my belief in reason was flourished uh, was was encouraged i should say and flourished under the tutelage of religious uh, clerics and leaders when I was a child. And in the same way that these people felt that you could gain an enormous amount of good from studying the natural world, and that the natural world was comprehensible and rational, I felt the same thing about ethics, and I have been attempting to do with UPB, with, with morality, what the early scientists did with nature, which is to say, well, it has to be rational. It has to be universal. And we can study morality in the same way that we would use science to study reality, and we should really, really focus on that. Because knowledge is to a large degree a matter of willpower. And the people who want to prevent you from knowing things simply 
punish you for the pursuit of knowledge. I mean, we can see this uh, in a variety of topics that I've tackled, that if you tackle particular topics that go against the uh, desires of those in power, they simply attack and punish you. You know, people look back and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe there was heresy that got people uh, punished in the past. But we have all the same nonsense now. We have all the same heresies and these landmine topics that if you touch them, uh, you get vaporized uh, from the world. And so, yeah, it really hasn't uh, changed. Unfortunately, of course, those are usually the topics you need to pursue in order to free people. But uh, it is really tragic just how, how little has changed. Okay, so let's talk about the Summer Theologica. So this was written by St. Thomas Aquinas between A.D. 1265 and 1274. It's got three main parts, and obviously you can delve into it as much as you want. It's very good reading. But the question of the existence of God. So, of course, he accepted that you could prove God. And here are his five uh, proofs. The argument from motion. Okay, think of dominoes. Dominoes, they fall down. And why do they fall down? Because someone flicked the domino at the beginning, right? Or the domino rose. You can see these things on YouTube. My daughter and I used to watch them years ago. The dominoes, right? They just fall down. If something falls off the top of a cliff, like a big rock or something like that, then clearly somebody pushed it or the wind pushed it or erosion collapsed the rock underneath it, it didn't just start rolling out of nowhere. If you see a rock flying through the sky, you don't think it's just there because it likes to migrate south to the winter. Somebody threw it. It's an extraordinarily strong wind. Uh, some Something, a catapult, uh, something has propelled it. There's no, nothing just starts moving on its own. This is inertia, right? An object that's in motion tends to stay in motion. An object that's at rest tends to stay at rest. So, if things are in motion, and we know they are, right? The sun moves, the the moon uh, moves, uh, the wind moves, uh, the water moves into a solid liquid, and and uh, all of that, and, and vapor. So things move, and nothing moves without something making it move at the beginning. And this is called the first mover, and this is who set the universe in motion, and that's God. The second argument is referred to as the argument from efficient cause. So nothing can cause itself. Where do human beings come from? Well, they come from fertilized uh, eggs, and they come from pregnancy and childbirth. A human being cannot create himself or herself. So rather than motion, this is, in a sense, existence. Rocks don't just pop into being, right? Conservation of energy. Matter can be neither created nor destroyed. can only be transferred from matter to energy and back. So, things that exist have to have come into being somehow. The first cause, right? You've got the first mover and then the first cause. What causes the first things to be created? That's God. So, the third, the argument from necessary being. So, if you think of you grow an apple, you eat the apple, the apple has disappeared. Or the apple doesn't exist anymore. The apple didn't exist. It's fed by sun and soil nutrients and water, the apple comes into existence and then you eat it and the apple is no longer into existence. Uh, it has ceased to exist. But 
something must have existed at all times in order for anything else to exist. So nothing can't be produced from... But something has to exist in order to produce the apple, like the apple tree, uh, the sunlight, the water. So whenever you look at something being created, a cloud is created, ah, but it's created from water vapor from... Uh, from water molecules from the ocean plus heat. Uh, oh, the rain exists, yes, but the rain is in the cloud. So everything that exists has something before it. Nothing can come from nothing. Things just can't pop into existence. So something must exist at all times in order to be able to produce everything that is. And something that exists at all time, an eternal being, that is God. Now, the argument from gradation. So think of a child learning to draw, learning to paint, right? So what do you do? You get these big, thick, wide brushes and you get this watery paint and you just daub stuff on this terrible crap paper and it just soaks through and it's, it's terrible. And the skill is not there. And you think of people, little kids who start to draw people, you get these circles, these lollipop people, these stick figures and so on. They don't really represent human beings much at all. And if somebody persists in art, then they become more complex, they become better, they understand uh, shading and perspective and depth and, and uh, lighting and musculature and all of that. So the complexity increases. If you look at the natural world, there are very simple creatures, uh, then they uh, become more and more complex until you get all the way to the human mind, which is the most complex thing around. And so you get this increasing complexity this gradation from less complex to most complex. And really in the realm of nature, you go from non-complex, non-moral to highly complex, highly moral. And there's no reason to believe that that gradation ceases. And therefore you must have infinitely complex, infinitely moral, because you go from less complex and less moral to more complex and more moral, and we assume that somebody with a very, very low intelligence has limitations to their moral reasoning, and we ascribe higher moral responsibility to those who are more intelligent. So you have this gradation from non-moral, non-complex, to more complex, less moral, more complex, medium moral, more com even more complex, more moral, and this gradation has, there's no logical reason to believe that it would end, and therefore you've got a being the most complex and the most good, that is God. The argument from design, which we touched on, of course, which is that if you have an environment perfectly suited to human beings, it had to have been designed. And that designer has to be outside the universe in order to create the universe, and it has to be supremely intelligent and supremely virtuous in order to create an environment where human virtue can flourish, and that argument from design is, uh, is God. Now, I mean, some of the replies to this are fairly obvious, the argument from design and so on, and the argument from gradation. Uh, it is not necessarily the case that things get uh, more complex uh, and infinitely better. I mean, a field mouse is shorter than a giraffe, and so the giraffe is taller, but that doesn't mean there's a being of infinite height because it's gone from 1 to 100. doesn't mean that you go from 1 to infinity. So that doesn't particularly work. The argument from design we understand through evolution. And there was not the same level of understanding of atoms, right? So they think, of course, or thought, 
And that was Democritus all the way back to the ancient Greeks had ideas about atoms or the essential parts of matter that didn't change. But there wasn't really any proof or understanding of these things until quite recently. So the idea that things come into existence and pass out of existence, we understand that the atoms remain the same. And so the argument from necessary being, not particularly strong. And the argument from cause, right? Nothing can cause itself. Okay, but this is the challenge, right? If you have an explanation that refutes your answer, you don't have an explanation at all. So basically, if you say nothing can cause itself, everything must be caused by something else. Okay, then what caused God? God cannot cause himself, right? Then you say, ah, yes, but what we do is we exclude God from this universal rule. Okay, but if you're going to exclude God from this universal rule, why not just exclude the universe from this universal rule? Right, so nothing can cause itself. Okay, then let's look at the eternity of matter and just say matter has always existed. Because if you say, well, the universe exists, everything that exists has to have been created, therefore God created the universe, you say, well, does God exist? Yes, this is the proof that God exists. Okay, but you said that everything that exists must be created. God exists, therefore God had to be created. No, 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 God is eternal. Okay, well, why can't matter be eternal? And the law of parsimony, the Occam's razor principle that do not unnecessarily multiply explanations. If things can be eternal, just have the universe be eternal. Because if you're already going to accept that things can exist without being created, such as God, then we can just move that answer to the universe, and we don't need that at all. And the universe, of course, we, we now have better proof that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Uh, similar to the argument from motion. Whatever moves is moved by something else. Okay, well then, God who moves must be created by something else. No, 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 God is the unmoved mover. Okay, but if you have things that are unmoved, why not just have the universe as that in that category, that it didn't need to be pushed into motion? So that is, uh, there's lots of pushbacks against these kinds of things, but those are the major ones. So I do think that we need to touch just very briefly. I appreciate your patience with this stuff. It's very complex, but very, very interesting to me. Fascinating, in fact. So I think we just need to touch on why this tension exists. This tension exists largely for political reasons. This tension between the mind and the body, between empiricism and idealism. So think of empiricism as consistency. Consistency is a value. And... Idealism is both consistency and inconsistency or values. Right? So in the scientific method, consistency with observable empirical phenomenon is the value. In idealism, consistency with the forms that are inconsistent with matter or consistency with matter which you need to survive along with consistency to forms which are inconsistent with matter is the value. So it, with straight-up empiricism, consistency is the value, and you don't have that contradiction with the higher realm of forms that are inconsistent sometimes with themselves and sometimes with matter itself. So I prefer just having consistency. I don't like consistency in the realm of the senses is a value, but consistency with ideals that are the opposite of the consistency of matter, because if they're not the opposite, then they're just derived from matter. I'm sorry, this is, this is really tough. Let me take another run at it. So if you say consistency with the natural universe is the value. That's the scientific method. Whatever theories you have have to be consistent with the operations of matter and energy. That's the value, consistency. Boom, done, you're done. 
if you don't have a higher realm, if you don't have the realm of forms or a newer mineral realm or nirvana or some mystical up is down, black is white realm, you're done. Consistency, you're done. It's simple. It's clean. And it's valid. <laughs> but if you say, well, in order to survive, you have to have consistency with the natural realm. But there's another realm, which is the total opposite of the natural realm, and you have to have consistency with that. Then you have consistency with inconsistency. In other words, the higher realm is inconsistent with the natural realm. Because if it was consistent with the natural realm, it would just be science. Just be reason. So you have a realm where you have to be consistent with the natural realm to survive and to communicate, but you have this higher realm of inconsistency that's also a value. So both consistency is a value and inconsistency or the opposite of consistency is a value. Sorry, I'm doing that thing where I've said the word too many times and it starts to lose its sense and meaning. But I don't like this multiplicity of... Cons- like, it's consistency of value. Yes, okay, then drop the higher realm where inconsistency is a value. You... You can't have it both ways. You can't say that consistency is a value and inconsistency is a value. I mean, you can say anything you want, but you're wrong. A thing and its opposite cannot both be values. You cannot get to the destination by going north and south at the same time. Two and two cannot equal four and a unicorn at the same time. This straight-up logic. Say, ah, but there's a higher logic. It's like, no, it's not a higher logic because logic is about consistency and fidelity to empiricism. In fact, the consistency is a requirement that comes out of our fidelity to empiricism. So you saying a higher logic is like saying good murder or up, down or square circle. It is an attempt to hijack the respect we give to reason and use it for the destruction of reason. Um, the good of the majority is the same thing. It's just to get you to sacrifice your interests for an abstract good that is never ends up being provided, right? So if you're going to ask for consistency, then you have to do reason and evidence. If you're going to say, now there are, you could say, well, no, consistency with the forms is the only value, and I'm willing to give up consistency with empiricism. But you can't, A, because you won't survive, and B, because what does consistency with the forms mean when the forms cannot be defined consistently? The forms cannot be defined objectively or consistently. The ideals, the mystical higher realm, can't be processed through the evidence of the senses or the operations of reason. If these higher realms, these higher forms, could be processed through the evidence of the senses and the faculty of reason, they would be real. So... One consistency is better than a value called consistency and the opposite of consistency. A thing and its opposite can't be both the same value. If you're a doctor, curing people and killing people can't be both the same value because they're opposites. So I really wanted to, to mention that. So where does the tension come from? The tension comes from this, that the higher realms are invented to create a reverse pocket of reality where that which is forbidden to the citizens is required for the rulers, right? Thou shalt not steal, but the rulers can take your property, right? So you need this opposite realm to shield the rulers from criticisms of inconsistency. Well, thou shalt not steal, well, why do you get to take from me? Ah, that's the realm of mysticism. So you need mysticism to exclude yourself from the rules you impose on others. But if you get too much mysticism in a society, it self-destructs. 
because people dream away like what Rudyard Kipling's first story about the opium dens. People dream away their reality. They don't work. They don't focus. They live for abstractions. They live for higher realms. They pray. They chant. They rub prayer beads. They don't plant. They don't grow. And so you want enough mysticism to exclude the rulers from the moral rules they impose upon others. But you don't want so much mysticism that people stop producing the excess that the rulers need them to produce in order to take from them. You need solid, practical, empirical, reason and evidence-based farmers to grow the food and tell the farmers not to steal from each other. But then as a ruler, you need the opposite moral rules to steal from the farmers, so you need the higher realm to wrap around yourself so that the opposite is true for you and it's perceived to be true for you and you bypass people's rational universalism. The king is just a man. He's just a guy in a funny hat. Why did he get to steal from me? That's where you, you ask people to be sensible and rational and process reality. Well, then that's one of the realities they're going to process. But you can't have them doing that because then they won't want you as a ruler anymore. They won't accept your rule anymore. So this tension between the ruler's need, mysticism for their imaginary morals, but empiricism for the practical labors of their subjects. This is the tension. And the more you push back against mysticism, both of the secular and the religious variety, the mysticism of the secular variety is where aggregations have properties different from the individuals that inhabit them, whether those aggregations are the nation or the class or the race or the gender, that these categories have properties that are different from the individuals that comprise them. Exploitation is a function of the bourgeoisie. It's like, well, but workers sometimes come into work and don't work. Uh, they, they slack off, they sabotage, they, right? So is that not them? Expo- is exploitation not possible elsewhere? And what about if exploitation based upon power is so dangerous, how can you have a communist revolution that puts in, into power a communist government that controls all property? Because if the control of property, if the controls of the means of production leads to exploitation, which is the bourgeoisie ownership of the means of production, if the ownership of the means of production leads to exploitation, then how does a violent group taking over the means of production not lead to further exploitation? Oh, but that you have to, that's the blank out, right? That's the, no, no, we're in the realm of higher forms. We're in the realm of mysticism now. The opposite can be true. So rulers need people to believe that the opposite is true. But if they believe that the opposite of planting will grow food, there's no food for the rulers to steal from and then creating this backwater reverse world where the rulers can do what is forbidden to the subjects. There's no point to it. It's nothing to steal. So, and, and you can see in societies, the societies that focus more on mysticism tend to fail, to fail to progress. The collective mysticism of the Chinese societies for thousands of years led to the shock of the much more empirical Western European and specifically British societies uh, kicking their asses all up the Yangtze in the opium wars in the mid-19th century. And I talk more about this in my documentary, Hong Kong Fight for Freedom. You can get it at freedomain.com slash documentaries. So if you get too much into abstractions and collectivism and worshipping the emperor and rigid classes or the caste system in India, you get too much into mysticism where the ideals completely plow under the practicalities of life, then you stagnate. And then any society that is more pragmatic and pushes back against the mysticism, shrinks the power of the rulers thereby, becomes more vigorous, and becomes more 
energetic and will expand into your territory. So this tension between Aristotelianism and Platonism will exist as long as we have these oligarchical political structures where there's great profit in creating opposite values for you than those you rule over. But not too many, because otherwise there'll be nothing left to steal. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Please, please, to help me out, I would hugely appreciate it. Have yourselves a wonderful day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.